one of the things I really wish that we did more intentionally was having them try on different hats. I'm just thinking about like in career and professional development services, there's all these career and professional development industry areas. So it's like arts, design and performance and communications and media and STEM. But I feel like students, what they really need to do is have some time in each of those parameters and think about it in a different way or spend more time thinking about what comes easily to you and how do you make sense of the world. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. You're listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures podcast. I'm your host, Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm honored to be joined today by Megan Workman Larson. Megan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm so excited to be joining you today. So I'm what happens when an opera singer runs a robotic showcase and then falls in love with education. So my background is in psychology, and I decided to then pursue a degree in opera performance. Um, I fell in love with mentoring students and I got really passionate about helping creative students figure out who they are, what their values are, what their creative identity is, and then what changes they want to make in the world and how they want to leave legacy behind. So I got really inspired by that and then I switched over to kind of pursuing education and doing more research. So I'm currently the Director of Student Engagement and Creative Career Services at the ASU Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts, where I oversee student leadership, student support resources, a variety of student um, leadership positions, creative career services. It's a variety of things. I wear many, many different hats, not as many opera fancy hats anymore. But I'm particularly interested and I research um, how creativity impacts education and how do you creatively research. I specifically look at lived creativity, how it's embodied, how it's experiential, how it's value-driven, and how people who work in arts and design in both structured and unstructured areas really flourish and find fulfillment through their work. Yeah, I absolutely love that um, and the journey you've taken. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, so how did you find yourself where you currently are with these really interesting intersectionalities between being an opera singer, and did I hear you say robot? Robotics? I did. How I came to ASU was working with the engineering department. So let's see. Um, Let me start back at the beginning. So I come from a family where people like research or music. So there's either medical doctors or musicians. So there's people traveling the world playing guitar or people trying to save people. I was kind of in the middle. I always grew up performing and singing, and I loved creative components. Um, I started out school in psychology, and I was specifically fascinated in languages. I had always sang, so I studied opera. Um, I transferred, so I started out as psychology. I transferred to community college. I worked overnight shifts with a variety of people, like dressing mannequins. I worked for a real estate agent opening hosting open houses for million dollar homes, as you do. And I found this really great voice teacher in Los Angeles who um, had mentored students for a very long time. And I decided to pursue opera. So I went to the East Coast. I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music for an undergraduate in music. 
so how I ended up in robotics, sorry, that was a very long segue back. Um, I did my master's at University of Southern California in educational leadership. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And one of the projects I worked on there was with the mission admission team that was doing Facebook application design to teach first generation college students about financial literacy, how to ask for letters of recommendation, all those different components. And I spent a semester or two interviewing students in Los Angeles. And from that experience, I ended up being hired in engineering, as you do with your degree in opera performance. And I ran Innovation Showcase and worked with students on how to showcase their robots. So one of the things I taught was how to design your research poster like it was a museum experience, or how to explain both to a kindergartner, to a peer, and someone who's an expert in the field, what makes you passionate about the particular area of engineering you happen to be pursuing. It was really fun. And I liked working with engineering students a lot. And I learned a lot about circuitry. Yeah, I just love that. And, you know, in the field of creativity studies, we um, have learned that having these kind of diversifying experiences is really um, a key ingredient to kind of living the creative life that it sounds like you have lived and are living. Um, I'd be interested in hearing more. And I think our, our listeners would be interested in hearing what is your take on what you see as one of the key or pressing educational questions or issues that you're currently working on? That's a really good question. For me, working at ASU, I am really driven by the mission. I'm really driven by equity and access. And how do we rethink our processes and policies and experiences to meet students where they are? I know that's a huge issue in education, but I'm really driven by that. And I because I research how people think about their values and make decisions based off their values, I really think that there's a lot more work to be done that, in that area in a creative way. But how can we learn about how people think in creative disciplines to also make education joyful and exciting and accessible? Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit. I think that's a, a really... Um interesting focus uh, that you're bringing. And again, you can see the diversified experiences that you've had kind of weighing in on this really critical question of access and equity and also meeting students where they are. So I think what might be interesting, I mean, this is the Learning Futures podcast, but I think in order to speak about potential futures, we have to think about um, the way things currently are and the way they have been. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the way you used to think about this, like meeting students where they are, issues of equity and access, and also just finding joy and creative expression in learning. And what has changed over time? Where, where are you currently now in your thinking? Oh, so much to unpack there. So let's start with how I used to think about this. And I will admit I have made some blunders and mistakes as everyone does, but I think that's part of being a lifelong learner is learning and changing your mind on these things and reassessing and trying to become really much centered towards community rather than ego. Um, one of the things that I have really helped shape my work is um, Arnstein's letter of, of, excuse me, <laughs> Arnstein's Ladder of Citizen Participation, which is from the 1960s. But it really helped me rethink about how students are employed and used in education. It talks about how there's ways to move people up the ladder to citizen control. There's how we use manipulation and therapy, which is non-participation, and how we use um, informing consultation and placation as tokenism, 
for people to really like, oh, we would like you to speak on behalf of this entire population of people versus partnership delegation and citizen control. And that made me rethink my staff role as well as a researcher about how I co-create with students, not for them, but with them and how I really share power and who's making decisions and who is at the table. That's really helped me reshape how I think of access and equity in education. Um, it's been really influential. I've also been thinking a lot about borders um, in terms of being from California originally, living in Arizona, being in a border state and everything that comes with that, but also about how borders expose a line of opportunity because people shift and change at borders. And I'm really fascinated at the border of creativity and education um, and access. Like what are the opportunities there? What are things that are going really well? What are things that are not going well? But I think it's always better to focus on what's going well and how you can think about incubating or leveraging to scale. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, it obviously leads to some more questions, but that's why we have this podcast, right? <laughs> so I think um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this and thinking about, you know, I think a lot about this tension um, because my work is in creativity and education as well. And so this tension where schools and, and institutions like higher ed institutions, but all the way down to K-12, often are about privileging sameness. Um, you know, you have this same group of students doing the same thing in the same way at the same time. Um, and there's usually predetermined outcomes where creativity really requires difference, you know, being able to arrive at goals in different ways and to expand different perspectives and have multiple perspectives and have openness um, and uncertainty even. And so maybe um, it would be interesting to hear you explore a little bit with us about, I, I love the idea of how crossing borders creates a new um, opportunity, a new openness, a new perspective. And so as we, as young people move into this place called school or higher education, how do you kind of navigate those tensions between, um, you know, there are these kind of fixed ways of doing things and some things, you know, we may agree that, you know, there are certain non-negotiables, but also I think there's many missed opportunities for doing things differently and rethinking things and, and expressing oneself creatively, even within the context of education. So how are you thinking about and how do you help students navigate the tensions between um, developing their own creative identity, bringing difference to a space that often privileges sameness while still kind of meeting some of those non-negotiables that might be in place? Asking the easy questions. Um, so... This is a really complicated question. I think that's very key in education. One of the phrases I hear students use a lot a lot of times in creative disciplines and in non-creative disciplines, and I don't mean just arts and design disciplines. I think there's creativity in a variety of areas, is I'm really glad that I have found like-minded people. And I think that's a really powerful and disruptive word that is based in privileging sameness. And I think creatives, I'll say from working with artists for the last six years, is that artists pull a variety of information, um, materials from a variety of different places, and then kind of repackage it and think of it in a very different way. And I think there's a lot to learn about having the both the breadth and the depth of education. In terms of how to work through this, I'll talk about my work. And I do not have any of the like definitive answers for this. I, I'm 
curious about this, and that's how I like to frame myself. I never think of myself as an expert, as someone who is curious in this work and how to really figure out how to make this work for students. So I think about this as the core of what we're teaching students is to be adaptive, resilient, and intersectional. And part of that is also part of their identity and how they make identity and value-driven decisions. On top of that, we layer like disciplinary craft and technical skills, creativity components and innovation. And then on top of that, there's more transferable competencies that are based in cognitive, collaborative and reflective skills. We teach a lot of cognitive skills in education. We don't intentionally teach a lot of collaborative and reflective skills. When I teach in the courses I do, which are a variety and hodgepodge, kind of like my background of like sustainable design thinking and entrepreneurship and arts and design and leadership seminars and a variety of things, I ask students what their values are and that takes them a really long time to come up with. Or I ask them, how do they communicate with people from different disciplines? And they're very lost, even at the higher education level. So my way of struggling through this is to really center collaborative and reflective skills to make sure that we're balancing them out with some of the bigger cognitive skill work and then layering them on top of really allowing students to explore who they are, what's their purpose, and how do they develop integrity of purpose? Yeah, I really like that. It- especially this concept of integrity of purpose. Can you kind of unpack how you're thinking about what that means and what that looks like? So integrity of purpose, I feel like I I always, I use that phrase, it's somewhat from chickering. I think the integrity of purpose is really to have an imaginative vision and to kind of have goals of ways that you are going to do that and also center ethical consideration and decision-making along the way. Because if you're basing decisions off of who you are and your values and learning and changing them continuously and thinking through it, I think that leads to really integrity of purpose. I might also just be rambling, though, because I'm not very good at talking without seeing people. (laughs) But I also study failure, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, what I'm hearing there is kind of resonating with some of the work that's happening in the college around, um, there's an initiative in the college around principled innovation which sounds like there are similar uh, concepts at play here. The idea of doing things, expressing oneself, innovating, but also keeping in mind the potential unintended consequences and making sure that um, the work that's being done is not just you know beneficial to oneself, but also potentially beneficial to others, right? What I would call a beautiful risk, a beautiful risk being you know, it may not work out, but the intent is trying to make a positive contribution to the learning and lives of others. But we all know that even our most well-intended and even seemingly most creative efforts can sometimes um, come at a cost to others or ourselves. And so I, I like this idea of integrity of purpose, of trying to maintain the integrity of that while, while realizing that, you know, the future is unpredictable, outcomes are unpredictable. Um, so how do you kind of monitor that and address that? Is that in a similar vein to what you're talking about? Very much so. You put that much more eloquently than I did. I love the idea of a beautiful risk. Um, I think mapping risk is really important when you're making decisions, as well as making sure that when you're making decisions that impact others, that you're really considering should you be making that decision? Is that your decision to make? Or who is not represented at that table that need, needs shared power to make that decision? And are you listening to them? That's my big critique a lot of times of design thinking, which I love as a concept, but a lot of times it self-perpetuates 
the people who are making decisions. Like this is the only idea that we should move forward. And creative ideas are risky and they scare a lot of people. And the pandemic has showed us that creative ideas sometimes are born out of necessity. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and I, I really like the idea of, of taking it beyond the individual. I think oftentimes creativity is thought of as just an individual effort, um, but there are always other people involved and there are always audiences that could be impacted in a variety of different ways. And so I think being very conscious about that from the outset and throughout the entire process that it isn't uh, a solitary effort and it doesn't have solitary outcomes for folks is a really powerful way to think about learning and creativity in education. So this is a Learning Futures podcast, so we want to kind of look towards the future here. And in doing so, because we have it plural, Learning Futures, we recognize that there are potential um, good futures, there's potential bad futures, and there's potential beautiful futures. So in thinking about the work you're currently doing, what do you see as a potential bad future for that work, a potential good future, and a potential beautiful future? This is also an excellent question. Um, We have a program called Herberger Day where we open up over, I think, 1,200 spots probably more at this point in creative workshops. And I ran one a couple of years ago that looked at creative careers of the future on a dystopian utopian timeline, looking at what we thought careers look, might look like in, with creative disciplines in 75 years, 200 years, 800 years. And I always go back to that when I think about this in terms of education, because there were some really beautiful things in the future, like someone whose job was to shape your dreams um, and sculpt them like they would a sculpture. So on the future dystopian, I think it comes back to that issue of access and equity. Like the dystopian future of education is that we fund K-12 in an inequitable way that allows communities that have more resources to have more resources down the line. And that we're losing so much brilliance and beautiful ideas and things that will change the world by not making sure that education is accessible and joyful. I, on the utopian side, I really don't see education as something that ever ends. That's something as myself as an opera singer and an artist and a researcher is I always want to learn more. I, creatives really think of themselves as lifelong learners and how they can always go back and have connection points. On the utopian side, I would see that education changes and it's more of a lifetime relationship and that it ebbs and flows so that you don't feel like it's only in one structure, that you can be connected to a variety of different educational institutions and community members and non-traditional educational structures to figure out what are the components you need to be successful and then how do you mentor other people. Beautiful. I think there's so much human beauty, but that's not to say that it's easy and change is really hard. And I think creative applications of engineering or business or arts and design areas really help humanize components and make change worthwhile. And I think that's the beautiful part of this. Yeah, I really like that. And I'd be interested in hearing how you're thinking about the idea of how can we work towards this kind of more beautiful utopian future that you described 
versus the dystopian where these persistent problems are you seeing things are you aware of are you doing things that are or can our listeners think about things that can help move us all towards that more utopian and and beautiful future of you know joyful ongoing learning where all folks even people that may not kind of identify as working in in as a creative or working in create in creative disciplines that are kind of recognized as such i would argue as a creativity researcher that all humans have creative potential and every human endeavor could be approached creatively so i'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on how can we work collectively towards that more kind of utopian beautiful future that you were describing and i very much agree with that i think there are creative approaches to absolutely everything i think in american education we have to acknowledge that it is based off of a white supremacist hierarchy and structure like there's a lot of big social components changing right now and that's really important and again change is really hard and brings up a lot of values and espoused values versus enacted values. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in our structures and our institutions to make sure that that power is not always top down and that it's bottom up and across, that we're really thinking of it in a more dynamic web or landscape. I think that is the first movement and it's going to take a lot of work. Um, I think education in terms of the structure. So I I research higher education and that's my context. I'm gonna talk about that because K-12 I think is amazing, but I do not understand it the way that people that research in that area do. Um, I think our education is very structured right now. And the more I talk to students, the more they want adaptive learning. They want to be able to dabble or explore or kind of run into something unexpected and be inspired. They always talk about spark and how they found that moment of spark. And we don't do a really great job in terms of education thinking about spark and joy. So there's a lot of work for us to do that center creativity in those aspects. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So can you describe, have you seen some examples of maybe projects or experiences that kind of combine that spark and joy that that maybe have been designed or or planned or maybe have emerged? Um, are there some kind of promising projects or efforts that you've seen? That's a really, that's a good question. I've been thinking about this a lot recently about what is going well. And the pandemic has made this even harder to see, I think, because I will talk on my part, I've been spending more time kind of being reactive in this last year than proactive. I, this is a really hard example. Because when I talk to students about things that spark their curiosity or motivation, it's always something unexpected that they happen to be coming about or dreaming about in a different way. And it's never, I can't, I'm trying to think about the hundreds of interviews I've done with students and has ever been in a structured position. And I don't think it has. Yeah. So I wonder about that too. I mean, I've thought about and written a lot about the idea that uncertainty can be an opportunity to think and act in new ways. Sometimes it's a necessity. Um, And I think you're right that sometimes when we face a crisis, it's almost like it's just about trying to resolve it. Um, But I think there's moments of reflection that sometimes might be lost. So for example, you know, we all move to Zoom and then, then we feel like that's resolved. But 
maybe it's a missed opportunity. Maybe there are some things that happen that are unexpected. And if we kind of explore those little moments of the unexpected, that it can really lead to transformation. And so I'm wondering about, I always think about like this idea of, can we structure uncertainty and can we unstructure some of the overplanned, overstructured experiences we design for students? So even allowing them to, even if the problem's preset, maybe allowing them to uh, solve that problem in their own unique way, or even allowing them to identify problems that matter to them and give them some time to try to explore, you know, what those problems are, why do those problems matter and what can they do about it? So are you seeing um, in your experiences working with young people and in higher ed, what kinds of experiences seem to cater to that kind of spark and joy, those kind of unexpected moments? Um, And how might we bring those into the kind of more structured spaces of planned curricula? I will now attempt to fix all of higher education in one rambling moment. No, I think that's great. I think structuring and unstructuring is really important. I think allowing space and place to be in play and how how do you explore and have the capacity to do so. Um, when I've seen transform, transformational change in education is when students, I think exactly what you said, get to define their own problem and then creatively find solutions and get lost sometimes along the way, fail, pivot, try again, and figuring out how they can work with other people is really important and tends to spur them on. Um, I taught a class that I'm really sad I'm not teaching this year that was cross-listed with sustainability and food systems that was all using human-centered design and design thinking to think about issues of sustainability and then how do you educate communities to think about sustainability in an accessible way. And the students in that course had a really good time and made wild and sometimes very funny and hilarious projects out of sustainable materials. And they had a great time and they talked about how they had never considered their audience before, how that making things understandable to people who did not agree to them was a really key point. And they had to struggle with a lot of space because we gave them lots of time to work without a lot of guidance. And that makes students, especially high achieving students, very nervous. And that was a really fun class. And I, when I think of joy, I think of that particular class. I'd also like to teach that class again. I just can't this semester. Yeah, I really like that. And I think those kinds of opportunities where students can kind of take those beautiful risks, think about audience, um, think about different perspectives, think about identifying their own problems. I think students rarely have an opportunity or rarely asked to identify their own problems through their, out their entire schooling career. It's almost like, you know, someday you'll get a chance to do that. And I think it's, you know, it's a huge missed opportunity and huge missed potentiality of what's available right now. Um, and so I think, yeah, that, that sounds like you've designed those experiences that allow students to explore that. So how does, so how do you see your life as an opera singer and working in robotics and all these different things. Do you see these things kind of show up again uh, in your work now? Yes. It's interesting when, when you're engaged in a creative discipline, people eventually stop asking you when you're performing next. And they ask you if you still perform, which tends to nip at your identity as a singer, musician, artist, designer, 
I found that people with creative disciplines, you think of their identity in a different way. They also measure in mindset in a totally different way, which is really fascinating because talent and hard work are equally valued and there's external internal influences with them. So it's, it's weird. Um, it's awesome. It's really fun to research. I decided in my 20s that I liked interesting people and I wanted to be one of them when I grew up and I'm still working on that. So like the engineering robotics stuff comes around. I still sing. I do weird cabaret shows on the East Coast. I freelance as a graphic designer. I kind of feel like you have to swirl a bunch of different things to have a life full of meaning. Um, yeah. So I, I really love hearing that. And the identity piece, I think, is looms so large. But I think those kinds of things that swirl around can maybe help generate those sparks you were talking about. It sounds like you're doing, you know, you do those those cabaret shows, you do these different things. Do you see that as part of the sparks that you were talking about? I do. Like encouraging students to bring them their full selves and full identities? Especially at ASU, I find students, because they are working two jobs or their high financial need and taking care of a family member or a child, they are really hyper-focused on their future in some ways education forces them to be and they don't have a better time to explore than they do when they're doing their undergraduate degree and one of the things I really wish that we did more intentionally was having them try on different hats Um, like I'm just thinking about like in career and professional development services there's all these career and professional development industry areas so it's like arts design and performance and communications and media and STEM but I feel like students what they really need to do is have some time in each of those parameters and think about it in a different way or think about um, like Gardner's um, intelligences, like try on those different hats and spend more time thinking about what comes easily to you and how do you make sense of the world? Does that make sense? Kind of. I just feel like there's ways that we could structure education for exploration, spark motivation and intentional development over time to make sure that we're giving students developmentally appropriate components. We always ask students to do things that they're not ready to do yet. And they need a little more growth and learning before the development segment. You know, students might be so focused on getting to college and then getting the degree and just taking time to explore is often not a message they hear. So I think you saying that, and I think our listeners hearing that could be a really powerful, that could be a real shift in allowing for more of those sparks um, to emerge in their learning. I always ask students, like, when is that identity yours? Are you waiting for that fancy piece of paper? Because that's not telling you anything. So I think we also have to have conversations about, like, when are you a singer? When are you an engineer? When are you ready? When is that part of your identity? And is that something that you want to own? And does it fit with the other components of your identity? Like, those are really important, crunchy things. Like, I don't think of myself as a singer. I think of myself as a musician. So there's very different components about who, how you think about yourself and make meaning that I think we should spend more time on. Students are really hesitant, especially without the context of higher education being something they easily understand from their family or legacy, that they're waiting to be told that they're ready to go when they're ready. So Megan, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. I'd love to hear more about where we can learn about the kind of work you're doing. If you want to share 
how people can maybe get in contact with you or learn more about your work, that would be great. Sure. Um, I think just emailing me would be great. My email address is megan.workman, W-O-R-K-M-O-N. Also, if you misspell it and it's M-A-N, it will also still come to me at asu.edu. Um, I love to hear from people. I'm but just published a book chapter um, with a couple fabulous researchers on the phenomenology of lived creativity, which was amazing. And um, yeah, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Well, I encourage the audience to do just that. And that chapter sounds very compelling. Thank you so much for spending time. I know you're extremely busy during this chaotic time. So we do appreciate you spending time with us today. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.